I'm Father Mitch Pacwa, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition. And this is a program where we do what we can to explain the sacred scripture, but through the lens of church uh, tradition and teaching. And of course, we love having you be part of the program. You can do so by adding questions and comments via email by writing to Scripture and Tradition at EWTN.com or follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Today we're going to focus on answering more of your emails. The show is envisioned to help you get closer to the Lord through the study of Scripture and prayer. And we have a lot of questions that we try to answer. Uh, as a matter of fact, you've been great in sending us your questions uh, to, by writing to Scripture and Tradition at EWTN.com, as well as the YouTube page. And there's way more questions than I can get to on any one show, especially as people call in with live questions. So we're going to devote this show to answering more of your questions. So let's start off here. Um, the first one is from a nurse named Phyllis Ann. And she says, Hi, Father Mitch, I'm a registered nurse <clears throat> with a perplexing question. At the birth of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, is, who assisted in Jesus' birth? Was it St. Joseph who did everything? Or did he get someone to help Mary give birth to Jesus? <clears throat> Was there someone who cut the umbilical cord? And did Mary have to push out the placenta? I know I'm addressing medical issues and concerns, but those things have to occur for a woman to have a healthy birth. Um, Phyllis Ann, well, of course, uh, both as someone who is a woman and understands these things, you know, from inside out, as well as a nurse who has, you know, this other kind of scientific insight and knowledge. All these things are very important. And you are not the first to think about this. Actually, there is a book known as the Proto-Evangelion of James. Uh, Proto-Evangelion or uh, First Gospel. Uh, that's what that word means, Proto-Evangelion. And this was a book written somewhere in the early second century. Some say as early as 125 to 150 uh, AD. And it mentions in there a lot of things that the Gospels don't tell us. Well, where did they get it from? Apparently, this came from the family recollections. Members of our Lord's extended family had included some of these details. Now, the Proto-Evangelion is not something that is part of the Bible. It was never included because it was clearly written after the death of all the apostles. And so they didn't approve of it and therefore it wasn't included. But you can go to the internet and you can look up the Proto-Evangelion of James or the first gospel of James and you can download that into your computer and find out about some of these stories. This is where we learn that Our Lady's parents were named uh, St. Anne and St. Joachim. This is also why we see St. Joseph carrying a lily. The episode where he uh, uh, has a lily is uh, in that book. It describes the marriage between Joseph and Our Lady and so on. So all that's there. And it mentions that when they got to Bethlehem, there was a maid, a young, young woman, who helped Our Lady. She was there as, as a midwife and presumably knew all the things that had to be done. And she took care of that while St. Joseph went to another part of the cave. And in fact, if you go to the cave 
of the nativity. There is the part that, you know, is most famous because it's where our Lord's birth was. And Our Lady and the midwife would have been there. Uh, and then there's another part of the cave. It's connected uh, with a little passageway. Another part of the cave is on the Franciscan side of the cave. And that is known as the Chapel of St. Joseph. And that's where he had to wait. In those days, men were not involved in childbirth, you know, unless absolutely necessary. Uh, but that was not something that was done. Men had to stay out of the way. Today, men are more involved. I, hopefully that's good for everybody involved. But uh, in those days, men had to stay out of the birthing area. So that's why that's there. And that's how you get those different episodes and traditions. So you might want to take a look at that, Phyllis Ann. All right, then we have Lisa from Red Bluff, California. Father Mitch, did the apostles or disciples work miracles while Jesus was still on earth? Or, or did it happen only after the descent of the Holy Spirit? Mark chapter 9, verse 28 speaks of the disciples. <coughs> Excuse me. The disciples' failure to cast out a demon. Lisa and Red Bluff. Well, Lisa, you do have that episode in Mark chapter 9. This is after our Lord had come down from the Mount Tabor where he had the transfiguration. But if you look at Luke chapter 10, now this is also described in Mark chapter, uh, excuse me, in Matthew chapter 10 and also Mark's gospel in shorter form, where our Lord had sent the apostles out two by two. He gave them an instruction on how to go and evangelize, and he gave them authority to heal and to cast out demons and to preach the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Uh, and call to believe. And it says in Luke chapter 10, verse 17, that the 70, because he did that twice, said it with the 12, then with 70 disciples. The 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And our Lord responded by saying, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread upon serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So this was something that uh, was definitely part of what they did. And in Mark's gospel, it even adds that he told them to anoint the sick with oil, and they were healed. So they did miracles and exorcisms during the public ministry. But, but, and this is where the, the, the point of mentioning Mark 9.28, uh, they didn't always do well. And a lot of times they didn't have enough faith. And that back and forth uh, was part of the problem of their growth. And it's important for all of us to understand that like the 12 apostles, all of us have to grow in our faith. We have to grow in trusting Christ and develop that relationship. And it usually doesn't happen all at once we have a development just like the apostles. And it's really a great thing that in their humility, the apostles included their failures in describing the gospel. When they passed on 
those stories, those traditions to the evangelists. They did so with humility in admitting their failures so that it became more and more clear that they had to develop their relationship with God and they had to depend on the role of the Holy Spirit and God's grace. It wasn't by their greatness. They were not so great, but the Holy Spirit made them great. And that was part of their development as well. Okay. Now let's take a look at another email. This one is from Sylvia in Miami, Florida. Father Paqua, I would like an explanation so I can explain to others how the Vulgate came about and why we have more books in the Old Testament than the Jewish scripture has. Someone said we Catholics are wrong in having those books and that everything we need to save ourselves is in the Bible alone, sola scriptura. Sylvia in Miami. Well, Sylvia, we've got a bunch of problems here, huh? Let's take a look at them. First, you want to know how the Vulgate came about. Keep this in mind that the uh, Vulgate was not the first Latin translation, nor was, it, nor was Latin the first language into which the Bible was translated. The Bible was translated into a number of languages very early on. For instance, they started translating the Bible into Syriac, which is a dialect of Aramaic, a Western dialect of Aramaic. They started translating the Bible into Syriac in the second century. And there were translations into Armenian because Armenia was the first country to become a Christian country. And Coptic, which is the language of ancient Egypt, well, not hieroglyphics, but Egypt at the time of the apostles had Greek, especially in some of the big cities, but also Coptic, which is the native Egyptian language, but, not, but written in letters rather than hieroglyphs. And these, these and other languages were translated. Well, there were some Latin translations very early on, but they weren't very good. The Latin wasn't very good. And St. Jerome was a brilliant Latinist. In fact, by the time he lived in the fourth century, the uh, Latin uh, writers, the best Latin writers, were Christians like St. Jerome and St. Augustine. But at any rate, he knew that there needed to be an improved Latin translation. However, the, he translated the books that were in the canon as decided by the Pope and a variety of councils. St. Jerome was a secretary of uh, Pope St. Damasus I. And Pope St. Damasus in the 380s wanted there to be a, a, an acceptance of a single canon because most of the churches around the Mediterranean world had only 22 books. And he said, well, why not that? Remember, up until 313, the church was officially persecuted by the Roman Empire. It had been made illegal right around the year 65 or so by the Emperor Nero. He decreed Christianity illegal after the fire of Rome, which the Roman historian said that he started. He's blaming the Christians. Be that as it may, the uh, Christianity was illegal, and to have copies of the Bible were crimes. 
that led to death. So people didn't have all the books. And when you see the lists of books, they're mostly incomplete until after the persecutions were over. Now, St. Jerome, Sylvia, keep this part very clearly in mind. St. Jerome was not so convinced about the deuterocanonical books, those seven books that Protestants took out. He wasn't really all that convinced. But later, he, when the councils decided, it was the Synod of Rome, headed by Pope St. Damasus in 382, and uh, that approved all 46 books of the New Testament and 27 books, excuse me, 27 books of the New Testament, 46 of the Old Testament. And then... You also have the Synod of Hippo and the Synod of Carthage. They were in the 390s, approving the same books. And those two synods, along with the Synod of Rome, are the ones that determined that there are 46 books in the, New, in the Old Testament. And they based that on what had been received because we, they already had those books in a translation known as the Septuagint. This was a Jewish translation of the Old Testament that was made in um, uh, 250 B.C. And then they continued translating all the way until about 100 B.C. Um, so all those were there. And he, the, the church accepted those books, and then Jerome translated them. He did not add books to the Bible, and in fact, he would not have put them, the, those seven books in if it were all up to him. So that is part of that history. I know it's kind of long and complex, but that's the way this is. Now, I'm going to take a little break, let that sort of, you know, simmer for a second and then I'll take part of your other question about uh, using the Bible alone. So stay with us and we'll cover that too. So we're answering a fairly complicated question. Well, the question was simple, <laughs> but the answer is somewhat complicated um, about why do we have 46 books in the Old Testament and many of the churches, especially the Protestant churches, do not. Um, and I mentioned how uh, Saint, you know, that, that the councils had agreed upon what had already been used, namely the Septuagint. Septuagint refers to the Greek translation of the Old Testament that was done starting in 250 B.C. The reason the Jewish rabbis translated the Bible into Greek was twofold. One, the king of Egypt, Ptolemy, I think it was Ptolemy the second or third, uh, had asked for it to put it in their library. They wanted a copy of the Bible that they could understand. And secondly, a lot of the Jewish people living in Alexandria didn't understand Hebrew anymore. So they needed it in Greek, just the way most Jewish people in the United States read the Bible in English. They, some, a lot of them do know Hebrew, 
but the majority would read it in English. Same reason they wanted it in Greek. And that was done between 250 and 100 BC, long before the time of Christ, right? And this was the Old Testament text used uh, by Jews living outside of Israel, just as Jews all over the world use Bibles in their own languages. Well, something to add weight. It's important to understand the weight of this. To understand why it's so important, the uh, New Testament cites the Bible 360 times. The New Testament cites the Old Testament 360 times. Of those 360 Old Testament quotations, 300 are from the Septuagint. Most of them are, not, are uh, right directly from that translation. And we have uh, the, the others, especially in the book of Revelation, it seems that he is quoting from an Aramaic translation of the Old Testament known as the Targum. And he translates from that into Greek. Uh, so so that, there's that, and then also in some other, other books, they do their own translation sometimes. Um, I think St. John does too. So, so that's what they have, all right? Now, because the apostles used the Septuagint, that Greek translation that included the 46 books, then we also see that the church used it. If it was the translation of the Bible used in the New Testament, therefore by the apostles as they preached around the Mediterranean world, then the church would continue to use it and use all 46 books. So that's why. Now, um, that uh, continued to be the case. And in fact, when some of the Eastern Orthodox churches were at a, a council in uh, Florence, Italy, in the 1430s. They uh, discussed the canon, and they also agreed again on accepting those seven books. So, the, and it's not like we're going to add them. No, we agree that these belong in the Bible. They are not removed until the 1520s when Martin Luther makes a translation of the Bible into German. Now, he didn't do it from scratch. He was using an already existing German translation. There had been, from the time the printing press was invented in the 1450s until the time of Martin Luther in the 1520s. There had been already 120 translations of the Bible into modern languages. German, English, French, Italian, Spanish, Polish. I've, I saw one of the old Polish ones uh, at a Polish uh, library in, in the Jesuit community in uh, Kraków, Poland. Uh, so these, the, these things were, were around, but he was redoing the German translation, Luther was, and making it fit his doctrine of justification by faith alone, by grace alone. So for instance, he added in Romans 4 that you are justified by grace alone. It's not in the Greek, and it's certainly not in the Latin, uh, but he added it. And then he also added, you are saved uh, by faith only. So you say, by faith alone, nur by glauben alleine, uh, assume by, by glauben alleine, and then nur by glauben. You know, he added those phrases, and even though it's not there, uh, the words only and alone. And that was also, because of that doctrine, he needed to remove seven books from the New Testament. Luther removed 
uh, the book of James. Why? Because in James chapter 2, it says you are not justified by faith alone. Because the letter to James contradicted Luther's doctrine, he took it out. And then in the letter to the uh, Hebrews, uh, chapter 10, he, it says that you can lose your salvation in chapter 10. So he took that out. And then in the book of Revelation, it says that you are, are going to be judged according to your works. He didn't believe in that. He said you're justified by faith alone. So he removed Revelation. He also removed 2 Peter, 2 John, and 3 John, and Jude. So all of those he took out for a few years. Now he put them back later, but he uh, added comments saying that the letter of James was a letter of straw. Um, you know, so showing them. And those seven books from the Old Testament he disagreed with because, uh, for instance, in 2 Maccabees 15, it says it is a good and righteous thing to pray for the dead. That contradicted the whole basis of his Reformation, you know, praying for the souls in purgatory. And this, so he took that out too. And because he didn't have any Hebrew copies of the other books, he also removed them. And he followed the Old Testament canon of the rabbis. Now, in England, the, uh, the Anglicans kept those seven books. In the King James Bible, first edition of 1611, they had those books still in there. They're in a separate section, but they were in there. In 1627, a Puritan print shop took them out. And they've gone back and forth a lot. Sometimes they put them in, sometimes took them out. But that was how that went with the King James Bible. They couldn't decide because they were using their own authority of their doctrine to determine what goes in the Bible rather than letting the Bible determine their doctrine. Now, that gets to your last question, Sylvia. Uh, some people tell you that you believe in the Bible alone. They don't. I'm going to say that at the outhand, uh, that you know, one of the first things to keep in mind, if you are removing books from the Bible because they disagree with your doctrine, you are using doctrine to determine what goes in the Bible not using uh, the Bible to determine your doctrine. Secondly, and this is absolutely key, the doctrine of using the Bible alone was a doctrine invented by Marsilius of Padua, a medical doctor who then changed to study philosophy. And in the third 1920s, the mid-1320s, he used this doctrine of the Bible alone based on some commentaries uh, on Aristotle that had been written by a Muslim named Averroes. Later on, in the uh, 1340s, he was joined in this new doctrine by William of Ockham, a Franciscan monk who agreed with him based on the same reading of the Muslim philosopher Averroes. That's the roots of the doctrine. Thirdly, the Bible itself never teaches that you use the Bible alone. That's not in the Bible. The Bible does say in 2 Timothy, for instance, that all Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Yes, but that never says he used the Bible alone. Instead, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15, it says, Hold on to the traditions that I left you, whether by word or by letter. The Bible teaches that you use tradition and Scripture. That is still Catholic doctrine that was clarified at the Council of Trent 
that we have to follow what St. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 2, verse 15. And again, of course, at the Vatican Council, that you have to follow 2 Corinthians 2.15 to hold on to traditions, whether they're oral traditions or written traditions in Scripture. So I know it was a fairly short email, but you asked about huge issues, and that's, you know, it's, it's a good history to, to know about. All right, let's go to yet another email, this one from Rachel. She says, Hi, Father Mitch. I want to become Catholic, and my question regards a marriage matter. I've been married for 30 years, and it's my only marriage. However, my husband has been married before. There was adultery involved in that marriage. So I know, according to Mosaic Law, that divorce was not unbiblical in that case. I wanted to become Catholic for 40 years. Will I still be able to become Catholic since my husband has been married before? Rachel. Rachel, you know, first of all, what um, you'd be very welcome. We look forward to having you in the church. And there'll be a number of things going on there. Um, what, you know, I don't know nearly enough about that case, that situation. And you haven't given me enough information uh, to do so, and it's probably not appropriate, you know, in an email and in the public. Here's what I recommend that you do. Go to a priest in one of the nearby parishes and talk to him and ask your husband if he doesn't mind. Uh, I don't, you don't say if he wants to become Catholic or not, but even if he doesn't, ask him if he doesn't mind to come with you and explain the situation. And your local pastor will know, uh, will understand what happened in that circumstance and why. And this would be something that you can resolve. But I, I can't answer that without a lot more information. And it's not appropriate for me to have on the air. I would urge you to go see the local priest, tell him the situation straight up. And uh, I... I'm pretty sure that they'll be able to help you out with that. So uh, that's part, and that process, you know, oftentimes it's a, it requires an annulment, a variety of things to take a look at here. But in that case, you know, it's also a process of healing of those, some of those pastors. None of those situations are easy. So it's a way to deal with some of the healing, but deal with that very locally and talk to the priest. I'm sure it'll be a big help to you, okay? All right, and then we have Maria from Staten Island, New York. Great to hear from you. Hello, Father Paqua. I really enjoy your show. Thank you for what you do. My question is, how can I know if my parents are in heaven? My dad passed away in 2007 and my mom in 2010. I pray for them every day and wonder if they are in heaven. Well, you know, one of the things about that is you cannot have absolute certainty unless unless there are there's a canonization process that gets started and then the church will declare with moral certitude that they are in heaven um, you can have uh, something on a private level of moral certitude you know uh, did they die in the state of grace, did they die uh, in, with faith in Christ our Lord? Had they been faithful to the best of abilities? Not without fault, but, you know, were they uh, faithful uh, believers? Um, those would be some of the things you can have in your heart. And I wouldn't, uh, if that's the case, you know, uh, there's good reason to believe that the Lord has redeemed them and taken them to himself. But it's not bad to keep praying for them. But do so with this sense that uh, of, of telling our Lord, Lord, if my parents are already in heaven, then apply my prayers to some poor soul in purgatory who has no one to pray for them. There are a lot of folks that you know, may not have anybody around that remembers them. 
And that is a good thing. I know I myself continue to, uh, I, I've been doing some, you know, uh, writing down of some old memoir materials of my former teachers and such and family members. And that has motivated me to pray for them and offer mass for them. Um, and if they are in heaven, then I just want our Lord to apply that to someone else that needs it. So just do that as an act of charity, not only for your parents, but also for the other poor souls. And as you know, uh, Susan Tassoni has said a number of times in my programs, uh, based on the books she wrote about purgatory. Remember, she's the one called the Purgatory Lady. Uh, she talked about how those poor souls in purgatory will never forget what you've done for them. And they will be praying for you. And they will be doing everything possible from heaven to intercede for you. They'll be great friends. So be generous in your prayers, okay? It'll be good for you as well as for those souls. And then we have an email from Beth in Missouri. Dear Father Mitch, my question is about watching a televised Mass. In these days of increasing fuel costs, participating at daily Mass is becoming a luxury for people on fixed income. Tell me about it. Um, if I participate in a televised or streaming Mass, I feel as if it only counts if I'm watching the Mass live and that watching a recorded Mass is a bad option. Am I wrong? Beth, Missouri. No, I, here, I, I would correct it here. It's not a bad option. You know, uh, especially if you oversleep, you know, um, you know, it's, it's a good option, especially compared to a lot of the things that you find on the Internet or on uh, regular television shows. Uh, <laughs> this is a good thing to, to have. So, yeah, it, it, it's fine to, um, you know, watch the Mass. But when it is live and the priest blesses you, that blessing is valid, a valid blessing. Uh, if it's a pre-recorded mass and then shown, uh, you, you don't get the official blessing. Why is that? That doesn't sound fair. Yes, it is fair. Because it's a machine blessing you. When it's live, the priest is there blessing you. And that's a live blessing. Whereas if it's recorded, then the recording machine can't bless you. Uh, so it's the, the live priest giving the blessing. But that does not mean there aren't some blessings. You know, for instance, just by making the sign of the cross, you receive a partial indulgence. And by praying, you're, you're, you're no, you're praying, you're, and you can still, even if it's a recorded Mass, you can still make an act of spiritual communion because that depends on the state of your soul and conscience that you ask our Lord into your heart at that moment, whether it's recorded or live. Now, of course, even if it is live, you still can't receive Holy Communion, but you can make an act of spiritual communion. And that would be a, uh, a very good thing to do, even if it is a recorded Mass. You can do that. So that's very important, okay? So it's not a bad thing, but it's just a blessing that uh, you get at live Mass wouldn't be there, but you can participate prayerfully and also receive the indulgences uh, and, uh, and graces of praying, especially in contrast to some of the things on TV. So I don't watch a whole lot of other channels. All right, we're going to take a break. Uh, again, remember, you can always send us your questions and comments by email to scriptureandtradition at ewtn.com or follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. All right, please stay with us. We'll have a few more of these questions. See you in a minute.
right, now we have a couple of questions that um, about things that we don't know a whole lot about, but we'll try to address our ignorance in this. First of all, from Mariah in New York City, Father Pacwa, what happened to the people spoken of in Matthew 27, verses 51 to 53, those who came forth from their tombs after Christ's resurrection and into Jerusalem and appeared to many. Were they also 40 days on earth like Christ and then unto purgatory or heaven without their body? With their body, did they live and then die again like Lazarus? Mariah. All right, Mariah, now you have to keep in mind, uh, one of the reasons you are asking this question is because the New Testament does not say what happened to them. We don't have anything about them. We don't know who they were and uh, uh, etc. But here would be my own speculation. Remember, this is my, you know, my PACWA ex, uh, you know, explanation to the best of what we know. Our Lady was later raised from the dead and assumed into heaven. And I suspect that something like that happened to these people that were raised from the dead. They were later on assumed into heaven. That, you know, A, when you're dealing with some of the uh, objections to our doctrine of the uh, assumption of Mary, that we have these situations, these cases, and that may be something um, that... Uh, you know, that we have, uh, that they were assumed into heaven like Our Lady, body and soul, um, because nothing else is said. When exactly that happened uh, is not stated, but nor the church normally treats the feast of the ascension of Jesus 40 days after Easter as his triumphal opening up of the gates of heaven for all the people who had died before his death and resurrection. That's why we uh, typically use Psalm 24 as a very important psalm for that day. Open wide ye gates, for the King of glory comes. Who is the King of glory? The Lord, the God of hosts. That would be referring to Christ opening up the gates of heaven. So that would be uh, what we think may be the case, okay? But again, that's speculation, not defined doctrine by any means. Then another one. Um, uh, hi, Father Packer. What do we know about the fate of Pontius Pilate? I can see how he tried to get out of condemning Jesus to death. He had him scourged, which is shameful, but in the readings one almost can get a sort of sympathy for him as he said more than once that he had found no guilt in Jesus. He seemed just to placate the Jewish leaders. I wonder if he regretted what he did and became a believer in the end. I read that he may have ended up committing suicide. Anyway, thoughts about this uh, a lot. I, I thought about this a lot in the readings of Holy Week, Tony and El Cajon. Well, uh, we know some things we know about Pontius Pilate. Uh, first, from the gospel. Um, yeah, you can sort of say you have a certain sympathy for him. The way you have sympathy for any other weak-willed politician who cares more about public opinion than he cares about truth or God's justice. So, yeah, if you're sympathetic to him, then you can be sympathetic to other politicians of a similar weak-willed and poorly formed conscience mentality. And believe me, 
for many of the politicians today, including many Catholics in office. Pontius Pilate is not their patron saint, but certainly their patron in the sense of being their model, uh, not being willing to seek justice for those who are uh, unjustly condemned to death, as in the case of the unborn or the very elderly. What we do know about Pilate is that he stayed in office as the procurator of Judea until 36 AD. According to the Jewish historian Josephus, in 36 there was a man from the Samaritans who claimed to be a prophet of some kind. And when uh, there were a lot of crowds gathering around him. And Pilate had sent some of his cavalry just to keep an eye on things so it didn't get out of hand and form into a riot. And the troops, um, for some reason, um, went and attacked those Samaritans and killed a lot of people, even though they hadn't done anything wrong. And the Samaritan people complained to the emperor Claudius. Claudius, uh, uh, excuse me, not, not Cla uh, Claudius, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It was Tiberius still. Tiberius was still emperor. And he recalled Pontius Pilate to Rome. So Pilate had to sail to Rome to be put on trial by Tiberius. Fortunately for him, Tiberius died and Caligula became the emperor in that year. And so he apparently was let off. Now, no more is said by any contemporary people. Nobody contemporary has evidence what happened to him. There were later stories that he was sent to Gaul, which is now France. Um, and he didn't go, he certainly didn't go back to the Holy Land. He wasn't replaced, uh, put back there. Um, but, uh, so he didn't become procurator in uh, Judea again. But he, but that was one story. And then there were some stories that he later became a Christian, but those are very spurious. We don't know that there's any truth. They were very, very late written, so we just don't know much about them. And stories of suicide and things like that, those are all very spurious and very late. Um, there's nothing that you can trust uh, is true in those. So we just leave that to be. That's what we do know about them, okay? All right, and then Mary asks an important question. Dear Father Pacwa, after Jesus was placed in the tomb, why did Jesus go to hell? Thank you and God bless. Mary. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 3, he describes this as the prison where the souls of everybody <clears throat> who had died from the beginning of the earth until, actually from the flood, until the time of Christ was placed. All the souls are there. Normally in the Old Testament, they called it Sheol, but Sheol is described as a prison of the souls in the book of Job. So Peter calls it the prison, and our Lord uses the same term in Matthew chapter 5 when he talks about being put into the prison until you pay the last penny, referring to your soul. The reason he went there to that place of the dead, which, by the way, in Old English, that place of the dead was called Hella. In Greek, it was called Hades, Hebrew Sheol, in Old English, Hella. That later on became hell. It wasn't the place of condemnation, the inferno, uh, or Gehenna in Aramaic. It was this place uh, of, for the souls. And he went there to preach to them, to let them know the good news so they could have faith in him. And then when he opened the gates of heaven, bring them all with. That's why he went to them. 
to let them know the good news. And if you take a look at, um, the, uh, it's a sermon from the second century, usually uh, referred to as Second Clement. Uh, you see a description in a sermon of how people in the early church thought how they awaited Jesus and he preached to them and set them free. And then we have one more I think we can get to. Dear from Rosalie, Dear Father Pacwa, I want to live my life for Jesus. One way I do this is by watching EWTN on my computer at work and praying along silently. However, when coworkers come in and see what I'm watching, they make fun of me. Now I find myself closing the tab quickly to hide it when people come into my office. I don't want to be afraid or ashamed of my faith and it breaks my heart because I'm too shy and don't know how to defend my faith to these people. What should I do? Should I stop watching EWTN at work? How can I overcome this fear? Well, Rosalie, first of all, make sure that <clears throat> by watching it at work, you are not you know, taking away time from your employer and that you are doing your work. Um, if it's not interfering with your work, I would continue to watch it. And though they tease you, what I would do is, um, again, it sounds to me as if I'm much more of a wise guy than you are. But I would tease them, oh, this is the program I watch to make sure I don't go to hell. What are you watching? And, you know, there may be some things that they see when they're on the Internet that are not quite so virtuous as the programs we have. And uh, you might just ask them, uh, are you watching something smutty? Are you watching something that is encouraging sin? because I'm trying to avoid sin and avoid hell. Um, so I wanted, to, I wanted to join me. I'd like to see you in heaven with me. But that would be a wise guy comment. Of course, and that wouldn't stop me. <laughs> All right, we are running out of time. It's been really a delight to go through your great questions. I really enjoyed doing that. And so keep them coming. And until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you and lead you in all of your ways by his peace. Lord bless you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. And again, keep us in between your gas bill, electric bill, and cable bill, and we'll be able to pay all of our bills and bring all these programs to you. God bless you, and thank you.